reading from Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The word of the Lord. As we come to Acts 17, we find Paul in Athens, and we come to a rather remarkable passage. In the entire New Testament, you only get one extended glance at Paul having an exchange with a truly Gentile and pagan audience that has no reference to Judaism, that has no reference to anything uh, regarding the Messiah. And that one look is here in Acts 17, as Paul finds himself on the Areopagus and begins to dialogue with the philosophers who are located there. And so it raises the opportunity for us to ask, how do we think about unbelievers? How do we think about the people in our culture who live apart from God, who have decided that the God of the past is something that we can do well without and move forward in life without? Uh, Actually, Paul is engaging a very similar phenomenon a long time ago. And so there's a lot to be learned this morning in terms of considering that exchange. And so we're going to look at Paul's attitude toward the philosophers, and then the philosopher's attitude toward Paul, and then the heart of Paul's message, all with the idea of trying to understand better uh, Paul's exchange with the unbelievers and how that informs our exchanges with unbelievers today. So we begin with Paul's attitude toward the philosophers. Notice that Paul comes into Athens He seems to be touring the city in some capacity because uh, it tells us in verse 16 that his spirit is provoked. He becomes angry, frustrated, because he goes around the city, he sees all kinds of objects of worship 
and statues, right, uh, devoted to various gods. And for the idolatry that exists in Athens, he thinks to himself, this is not the way it should be. I'm frustrated. Uh, The language is rather strong. It's the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe God's frustration over Israel's idolatry. So as, Israel, as God would look at Israel and say, this is not the direction you should be going. You're, you're opting for a gods that aren't actually going to bring you life. Paul thinks the same thing as he walks around Athens and grows frustrated. But, you know, notice that he doesn't then move immediately to uh, condemnation. I judge you for your idolatry or God will judge you. He doesn't move uh, to some form of contempt. How can you be so foolish? What does he do? Instead, he moves to a place where he can tell the story of Jesus. He acts in compassion toward the city that provokes his spirit. He thinks to himself, not only is this not the way it should be, but God is not receiving the glory that is due his name. And if God isn't receiving the glory that is due his name, then you won't be receiving the life that you could have by worshiping the one true God. Paul impresses me that way, that you engage the city in that fashion. And it makes me ask, how do I engage or how do I respond to walking around the idolatry of Rockwall? How do you respond? Whatever community in which you exist as you make your way from store to house to neighbor right, and engage all of the idolatry, whether it be idolatry of houses or cars or businesses or entertainment or drink or kids, whatever it may be, how does your spirit respond? Do you, do you find yourself moved toward a place of compassion? Move toward a place where you would hope for the opportunity or engage the opportunity to tell the story of Jesus? Or do you sometimes find yourself in a place of, well, fools, they will reap what they sow. Or my kids will grow up to be righteous and they will condemn the story of their indulgence and foolish decisions. Right? That would be contempt or condemnation. But that's not what we see Paul doing. Is there opportunity for us to engage the community in compassion and to, to build relationships, to even play the fool? And I notice Paul is going to engage the gospel, and at the end, he gets a very small return for his investment. Most of the people, as we'll see, are writing him off, not interested in the story that he has to tell, even though some say that they want to hear more, whether that's sincere is hard to know. Paul is willing to play the fool to tell the story of Jesus. Are you willing to play the fool to tell the story of Jesus? To have an engagement with a neighbor. And and notice too that as we proceed, Paul seeks to relate to the neighbor on their own ground. He's going to speak to them about their statues and say, oh, you know, let's talk about what what you have here as a segue into talking about the story of Jesus. It calls us to engage our our neighbors, to love unbelievers, to say, you know, what do you love? What do, you, what do you worship? Of course, you wouldn't phrase it that way, but what do you love? When we talk about what we worship, we're talking about what we invest our time and our energy and our money in. So when you ask your neighbor, you know, what, what are you committed to? And it could be anything, but tell me about that. Why does that give life to you? Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe that might be opportunity for them to in turn ask, well, what do you love? Well, this may sound crazy. No, Jesus' people in church has a really bad reputation these days, but I really do love the story of Jesus. I love the story that God became man to redeem me. Out of love for his creation, out of love for his people, he died so that I might be rescued. Now, I might start a conversation, but not. 
Might even, <laughs> you might not see that friend for a while again, right? But it's what happens to Paul, right? Are you willing right, to play the fool for the sake of the story in which you believe? Are you willing to have compassion, right? Not to be the cynic and the scoffer. Look at all these fools who surround us, right? Look at all these people who are living way beyond their limit on their credit cards. How stupid. Instead to say, yeah, if I didn't believe in Jesus, maybe that's what I'd be doing too. Because there isn't a whole lot of good options apart from the story of Christ. As I was saying about this, I was reading too about a a minister who uh, became a missionary. His name was Reverend Thomas Theron Alexander. He grew up in Tennessee at the end of the 19th century. And when Japan opened up after being closed for almost 100 years to any Western outsiders, he said this is an opportunity from God to go and share the story of Jesus in Japan. And so he got married. Five months later, he got on a boat, took the month-long journey to get to Japan, and spent the rest of his life uh, evangelizing primarily in Osaka. Planted churches, legacy that exists there to this day. Well, there is a man who has compassion, who sees this opportunity in this unbelieving population and says, I'm going to move toward it. How important it is for us, right? Now all of us are called to move in that direction. It wouldn't even make sense if we all decided on the same day to move away from Rockwall. Right? We're, in one sense, missionaries in our own context, but how important that we, we support and encourage our missionaries, uh, like Joel and the, the leaders, Joel Swearingen and the leaders of the CRI projects, that they, they tell the story of Jesus in a place that is surrounded by idolatry uh, and in place, places where the story of Jesus is not frequently told. And this is what Paul uh, holds out for us as our participation in God's mission in this world. So we see Paul's attitude toward the philosophers. Compassion. I'm going to tell you this story and see what you do with it. But what, in contrast, are the philosophers' attitude toward Paul? How are they thinking about him? This is a pretty interesting uh, bit in terms of understanding the ancient world and how some things haven't changed all that much. Uh, Paul begins, he proceeds to tell the story of Jesus. He starts in the synagogue where he always starts. But by 17, it's clear that he's telling the story of Jesus to basically anyone who will listen, any opportunity. And so he starts speaking uh, at the Areopagus. The Areopagus was both a place and a council, and probably is functioning in both roles in the midst of our passage. And there he comes into contact with who? The philosophers of the day the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, Epicureanism and Stoicism is important because they're the two reigning philosophies in the Greek world for centuries. Basically, from the time of Plato all the way up until Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the Greco-Roman world, Stoicism and Epicureanism ruled the day. Now, they were, in some ways, very similar. Uh, Both Uh, philosophies thought that there was no room and no advantage to the old gods. If you wanted to believe in Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite, God bless you. That's a very ancient notion, right? Isn't that funny that we're talking about the ancient world, thinking about the old gods being an ancient notion and dismissing that and saying, you know, there's no supernatural. There's no divine. There's only the material. There's only this world and what we can hear and see and touch and taste. And that's all that we need to be concerned with. And so The question becomes, what's the goal of life? Okay. Well, the goal of life for both was to become a sage, to become a truly wise person. Now, you couldn't actually achieve sageness, but as you drew closer to being a sage, 
your life would be filled with more peace and contentment. You were pursuing what they called the perfection of being. Well, how do you pursue the perfection of being? This is where they differed. If you were an Epicurean, the problem with humanity is humanity's desire for things that need not be desired. In other words, imagine that you want a new bicycle. Perhaps this is on the mind of some of our boys and girls. But the problem is the bicycle you want, you can't afford. You don't have the money to buy the bicycle. And so you think to yourself, my problem is I need funds. I need resources to get the bicycle that I want. That's my problem, and that's the problem I have to solve. Well, not so, says the Epicurean philosopher. The Epicurean philosopher says, no, your problem is that you want the bicycle that you don't really need. And if you simply stop wanting the bicycle, you will be free of the disappointment of not having the bicycle. And so Epicureans talked a lot about living a very simple life, unencumbered by things that you didn't need, and that you would enjoy greater happiness as a result. Now, hopefully by this point, this resonates with you because it's a profoundly popular message today. And if you tune into some talk show or go to look at the self-help section of the bookstore, there's lots of information on how to simplify your life, how to get rid of things that you don't need or want or bring you joy. And as a result of that simplicity, you will live a happier life, right? This is Epicureanism. And you recognize this. Some of you say, can think back and say, yeah, there was a season where I really wanted something and I knew I just wasn't going to get it. So I told myself I don't really want it. And you played the Epicurean. I'm going to kill the desire, therefore I'll be free. Okay, so that's Epicureanism. The Stoics said, that's all well and good. They didn't really have a problem with Epicureanism as it was, but they said that's not enough because life is not simply about desire. The Stoics said, life is filled with tragedy. It's filled with suffering, and just limiting your desire is not going to prepare you to meet the tragedy that's going to come upon you. Sickness, death, loss of loved ones, things not working out. What you have to do is really prepare yourself. You can't be surprised by tragedy. You have to assume that it's coming. I mean, some of you have this personality. You're like, I'm ready for anything because I think every day something bad's going to happen. And you, in that way, are kind of a stoic. I'm going to be prepared. It's going to come, and I'm going to meet it. And I'm going to move through it, and on the other side, I'll be stronger. Right? And this, you grow in, um, in stoicism, you pursue the perfection of being because each tragedy that you face with courage and move through, you become stronger. And ultimately, right? It's, we hear echoes of this in things like, um, oh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Or if you've ever thought, this is a really big problem that's coming at me, I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and in grim determination meet it head on. Right? That's kind of the stoic bent. And so these are the two, two attitudes, or two, attitudes is the wrong word, two philosophies that dominated the ancient Greco world. And again, you easily can think of resonances in our time today in which people opt for these philosophies as well. In fact, even in Western culture, as we increasingly, right, the numbers rise dramatically every year, almost exponentially, of people saying, we have no need for the old God. Right? The Greeks put away Zeus and Apollo. We are putting away the God of Christianity, and say we just will figure out how to live life without any reference to God. All there is is the material. People are opting for things like Epicureanism and Stoicism. 
Right? These philosophies are all the well, and you will see them. They're going to become all the more apparent and prevalent in the coming years as society increasingly moves away from God. But this is what uh, Paul is engaging and coming up against in terms of um, the ancient world. And in terms of what Paul is dealing with and in terms of how it applies today, I want to introduce to you a woman who will play a, a role in our story. Her name is Joanna Reed Shelton. And Shelton grew up uh, down in the, the flatlands of Texas near the Gulf. And she would eventually rise through uh, the academy and set her sights on becoming a significant diplomat. And she became a fairly prominent diplomat, uh, worked for the Organization of Economic Development globally, uh, facilitating all kinds of projects and the economic growth of various countries. And she would say in the midst of her, her work as an economist and as a diplomat, so we can try all kinds of things in a country, but the one thing that we shouldn't try is religion. Because religion is just, it's the bane of humanity's existence. It always puts us in the wrong direction. We need to put away all the old gods, and we need to move forward in a way that's completely secular, that has no reference uh, to God. And this is the kind of attitude both that we see in Shelton, we experience, and Paul is engaging at uh, when he hits the Areopagus, which makes right, Paul's message all the more fascinating in terms of how he chooses to engage these philosophies. He does not begin by taking apart the philosophies themselves. He begins by presenting to them, even though they put away the old gods, he basically says, perhaps you have not conceived of a God that is big enough. And this is how he engages uh, the people to say, you know, you've asked good questions, but perhaps there are better answers than you've considered. Which is a really creative way to engage uh, the philosophers at the Areopagus. You know, he begins, we see by mentioning that, you know, I passed an idol that was devoted to an unknown God. Well, that's funny because I'm here to tell you more about that unknown God. And so how does Paul unpack God? And beginning in verse 24, you would be hard-pressed to, uh, to state more theology about God in a more concise statement than Paul does here. Uh, notice what he does beginning in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, there is one creator, there is one God, as opposed to the pantheism of the Greek world, and as opposed to the creation coming out of warfare amongst the gods, this God simply created the world. There was no, uh, no warfare that needed to occur uh, out of which creation would arise. He goes on uh, in the second half of verse 24, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. In other words, this is what we call God's aseity. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from humans. Paul is saying that God is quite fine on his own. If he moves towards humanity, he does so out of love, not because he needs something from us. Now, if you have any familiarity with the Greek legends, you know that the gods uh, were strong and powerful and could not die, but they desperately needed humanity. All of the gods' stories are bound up in their unending participation in the human story and consorting with humans. And it was almost as if there was no story of the gods without the human story. And Paul's saying, my God is quite different. In verse 26, Paul goes on to say, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. 
In other words, God has created man and oversees all of his affairs. I'm talking about God's providence. One does not exist outside of the will of God. Now, Paul continues, and by verse 29, he says that you have rightly recognized that we are his offspring. In other words, we are created in the image of God is where Paul is trying to go. And in verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, Paul, man, he is just, he's, he's taking giant leaps. All right, God is creator. He's self-sufficient. We exist in his providence. There's no life apart from him. Yes, you've recognized that humanity has been created by God and in his image, which makes it really funny. Why do you think of him in images of metal and stone? Because we're not metal and stone. Now, Paul then immediately segues to say, this is all well and good, and in times past, God has forgiven this kind of ignorance, but he will no longer. Because his appointed person, the man he has appointed, has come to reconcile all things. Verse 30, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So Paul goes immediately to say, why in the world do you think of God in images of metal and stone? Be careful. God's not passing over this ignorance forever. A day has been set for judgment. If you don't believe that, God has assured it because he has entered into history and has risen that man from the dead to vindicate him. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you say resurrection? And the Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. You died and went to some place after death, but there was no resurrection in this world and certainly no resurrection never to die again. Now, why would that trip up the Greeks to such an extent that they immediately just said, we're done here? Because what if resurrection is true? If resurrection is true, that means that there is something or someone who exists beyond the laws and boundaries of this world who can enter in and act contrary to them, who can undo death. And if there is someone of that nature, that means that the supernatural or the divine exists. And if the supernatural or divine exists, then that turns Epicureanism and Stoicism on its head. And as a result, that threat, we're not going down this road. We deny resurrection and are not interested in what you have to say. And you can imagine how it might have begun to raise very difficult questions for philosophies that exist apart from the glory of God and the reality of the arrival of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And even as you may have friends, or even as you see your own self tempted, we're constantly tempted to walk through life without faith. And when we do, we have to turn to something like Epicureanism or Stoicism. And for those who become Epicureans and say, oh, I just have to get control of my desire if I can master my appetites. And in some ways, that's very true. In some ways, that's very biblical. But you could also ask questions, well, what, what makes a good desire and a bad desire? And who gets to decide? And what if I can actually achieve my desire? Is that wrong then? The Epicureans are saying your problem is you desire things that you can't have. But what if I figured out a way to have them? What if I figured out a way to rob a bank or to trick the stock market or to create a pyramid scheme? And I'm 90% sure I won't be caught. Let's say I don't even get caught. Well, now I have my desire and my desire has been fulfilled. 
And you poor Epicurean, you're living in your, your simple right, houses saying that I shouldn't pursue this, but I've actually achieved my desire. And if I've achieved it, is it, is it wrong? Because the whole problem is my desire that couldn't be fulfilled. Now my desire has been fulfilled. Or with Stoicism, right, it's life simply that we go from one tragedy to another over and over again, and it makes us stronger in some way, but ultimately we just face death. What's the point of that? Does that give you enough reason to get up in the morning? You know, sociologists uh, are all over the West are scratching their heads and wrestling with the reality of the incredibly rapid rise in suicide. And I'll tell you this, it's going to keep going up. Because once you take away God and the transcendent from this world, there is no real reason or meaning or purpose to move forward. Tell me, I'm, just, I'm getting stronger by facing each tragedy? And then at the end of the day, I face still the biggest tragedy of all, which is my death. What's the point of that? Why don't I tap out early? Why keep going? So we see the inadequacies of, of ways in which we attempt to navigate life apart from the reality of the God that Paul describes, right? and the reality both of judgment and love represented in the arrival of Christ and in his resurrection. This is exactly what Joanna Reed Shelton had to struggle with uh, and as she came kind of to her midlife, uh, late in life, she was a very successful diplomat lecturing all over the world, and she got a very unexpected invitation. Invitation came to her email and said, uh, came from Osaka, Japan, and said, we'd like for you to come and celebrate the 120th anniversary of the church that your grandfather planted here in Osaka, right? The reverend we spoke about at the beginning, Reverend Alexander, of uh, the sermon. She, of course, knew of her grandfather. He, she knew he was a missionary. But he was, she wasn't that interested. Her parents, his children, had walked away from the faith by and large, and she hadn't been raised in it. She thought, this is silly, but I'm interested in my grandfather's life. I'll go. And she spoke and participated, and she was, uh, she was met there in a significant way you know, by, G, uh, um, by Jesus in a sense, but simply also by the reality that that her ways of trying to navigate the world without reference to God were inadequate. She found herself staring at the organ in the church, and she knew that her grandfather's daughter, Ella, had played that organ, and she had tragically died at 14. And it was such a blow to her grandfather that he barely recovered uh, from suffering the death of his daughter. And so she was fighting back tears, but she couldn't really understand why, and proceeded to go to the, to the gravesite of Ella, and she proceeded to clean the, the grave. And all the while, she has the sense that the way she's lived life and the questions she's asked and the answers she's pursued aren't actually adequate. They don't explain to her how life is or her experience of life. And there has to be something more. So in 1999, she decides to leave diplomacy, buys a little plot of land up in north of Montana, right, and begins to work on a biography of her grandfather, and she also begins to read the Bible under the, and ask for a couple of relatives who are still faithful Christians to guide her in that. And in that, she, uh, she considers the claims of Jesus. She considers the life of her grandfather and realizes that there's so much, um, there's so much more to his life and to his faith and to what he accomplished than to what she had been peddling, so to speak, as a diplomat. And one of her favorite passages was when she came to John 14, uh, 8, 
where Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And she realized that in the Gospels as she met the resurrected Jesus, as she met Jesus, she understood the assurance of God's love in the midst of his judgment and turned towards him. Now as a member of the Presbyterian Church up there in the north of Montana, having turned to Christ. There's an example of what Paul is engaging even in our own day. Just as the Epicureans and Stoics says, we don't need the old gods. We can navigate life just fine by our own. So Shelton would participate in the secularism of the West and say, absolutely. We don't need the old gods. We're doing just fine navigating things on our own. But the, the reality was, when she asked real questions and started to think more deeply about life, she realized, no, it's not actually answering the questions. The questions go much deeper, and the answers have to be much bigger. And this is the God that Paul holds out on the Areopagus uh, to the Greek philosophers. So you, you've asked good questions, but your gods have been too small. Here's the real God, right? And we've seen him. If we've seen the Son, we've seen the Father. As you live in this world, as we live together in the West, and increasingly it moves in a secular direction and leaves behind the old gods, you and I have the gift of life. Simply start up a conversation and offer, actually, maybe you haven't considered how big God is or how loving he is right, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in that, you offer life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us For you did not need us, but you have pursued us in love. You did not have to redeem us, but you went to great extents that our our punishment might be taken on by you and that we might be made righteous through the righteousness of Christ. We give you thanks for that righteousness and pray that you would nourish us in that righteousness this morning as we come to your table. We pray that you would lift our heads and increase our joy and cause us to to both celebrate and to live out the reality and the assurance that, yes, judgment is coming, but we pass through that judgment because Christ has passed through it on our behalf. We give you thanks and pray that you would help us to prepare our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.